I do want to begin by um, confessing something before you. Um, generally, if I'm asked to uh, preach about evangelism, I don't entirely warm to it. Um, of course, I'm persuaded profoundly that uh, a Bible teacher should um, uh, encourage uh, his people to uh, to go out and just share the good news. And uh, frankly, we couldn't have escaped that implication from last week, Matthew 9, 35 to 38. I think it's been, been uh, impressed upon us very strongly this morning already. People are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus does have compassion on them. Jesus does call his people to pray that the Lord would send out workers into the harvest field. So, um, uh, I can't avoid it, but I have an internal hesitation. I know, you see, that it discomforts people. Uh, Some, of course, will rush out, uh, blurt out the the gospel in 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 response to... uh, uh, to a Bible passage like the one we're coming to and upset their friends and neighbours and perhaps be hurt. Others will feel condemned because they don't feel they've got the courage to do that. Still others will have become adept at sort of um, avoiding the, what the Bible says and uh, they will exercise that reflex this morning and uh, become even more hardened in uh, not really listening to what Scripture says. And all in all... Uh, to be honest, I don't enjoy it. I want to encourage people. I want people to feel good. I want to, uh, I want to lift their hearts and, and enable them to sing. And my reflex, at least, is uh, when we're thinking about getting out there and sharing the good news of Jesus, that's not the first way that people respond. So I was meditating on that. Um, this week as I prepared to um, uh, teach this passage to you and my eye alighted on a little phrase in this passage that really spoke to me. It's not actually integral to the uh, message of the text. It's just incidental and yet it really um, uh, said something new to me. It's there in verse 13 of Matthew 10. Jesus speaks about your Peace. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it's not, let your peace return to you. And I realised that much as as Jesus was sending these disciples in Matthew 10 out into hostile world, he expects them to be people who enjoy peace. And as, as, I, as I turn to pray, actually for you, in response to that, I realised that that's a major reason why, actually, we need to be people who are encouraged to share the good news of Jesus. You cannot enjoy Christ if you're not sharing him with the wider world. We cannot be people at peace Only a certain kind of autocrat chooses to feast alone and not share 
his food with others. Only a slightly warped kind of millionaire chooses to buy a masterpiece and lock it away in a private room and never let anyone else see it. And the secret garden, remember the story? It's a wonderful children's uh, story. Um, But even that, you see, that secret garden finds its 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 um, delight for the little girl as she shares it with her friends. So my 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 great aim this morning is actually to deepen your peace, our peace, knowing, loving, enjoying. Christ and and completing that experience by sharing the good news of Jesus with, with, with others. You know, if two people are walking along together and one sees a beautiful flower, they initially have a, a, a rush of pleasure and joy at seeing that, but that pleasure is completed by saying to the person next to them, look at that, and sharing the experience. So as we turn to Matthew 10, then, I, I, I don't want you to feel anxious. I don't want you to, to uh, have the, um, uh, the, the, the barriers up ready to resist. I want you to be expectant. But Jesus is telling us how we can be people like those disciples who enjoy peace. Now, the first thing we need to realise is that this is, to be honest, quite a difficult passage for us to interpret um, because um, some parts of it are absolutely unique to that moment. Um, Jesus sends his disciples out at a particular moment in his ministry for a little little, um, uh, practical bit of practical learning. Uh, a dry run, an exercise that they do in the local areas, um, but, uh, but it is not repeated. So, in, um, when he says in uh, is it verses 5 and 6, do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans, go rather to the lost sheep of Israel, we are not to think of that as applying to us any longer. It uh, is superseded by um, Jesus at the end of Matthew's Gospel saying, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Go now to all nations. So some of what uh, is said to these disciples doesn't apply to us at all. Some of what is said to the disciples here applies perhaps particularly to those who are devoted to full-time gospel ministry, like me, but not in particular to all and sundry. So uh, uh, Jesus tells them to go um, without any support and to seek the support from their hearers, from the people that they teach saying that the worker is worth his keep. And so people like me um, rightly um, uh, have our financial support from the gifts of people in the churches that we lead. That's how I make my living and I'm extremely grateful to you uh, for it. But I'm not going to dwell much on what this might say to full-time gospel workers because most of us are not that. I want us to look at some broader principles that there are that underlie this passage, unique as it is, and aimed at people who are set aside for gospel ministry as it was, some broader principles 
that actually apply to all of us. First thing I want you to notice, if uh, our technology works, is that they were ordinary people. Very prominent in verses 1 to 4. You see verse 2. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First Simon, who's called Peter, his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Um, the twelve disciples, now called apostles, which simply means sent ones, people who are sent, they, uh, some of them are justly famous, like Peter, called by Matthew here in verse 2, did you notice? First Simon, who is called Peter, he became the, the chief uh, uh, apostle uh, amongst the twelve apostles. But frankly, if you look at Peter's life, the record in the New Testament, he's more prominent for his failures than his successes. And others, well, others... Um, have a dark cloud already hanging over them. Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. It's a warning to every generation that actually simply, simple membership of God's church does not automatically mean that we will, in the long term, be true disciples. One of the apostles betrayed Jesus. There are the more spectacular characters in there then. But what I want you to notice overall is that, frankly, they're pretty ordinary. Most of them were stumbling rural fishermen. Some of them we know almost nothing about. James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus. Those we know a little bit about are sort of Philip the pessimist, Thomas the uh, uh, doubter, James and John the loudmouths. Every one of them, in the end, cowards who deserted uh, Jesus. They make you know, a church like this look positively star-studded, frankly. So, let, let, me, let me reassure you, if you are not an uneducated rural person, but actually someone with some education, even perhaps from Oxford University, you're still welcome in the kingdom of God. If, 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 if you are a person... Who, who doesn't naturally open their mouth and put their foot straight in it like Peter, well, you are still welcome in the kingdom of God. If you're a person who naturally has a sunny, optimistic outlook and is not a pessimist like Philip, you're still welcome in the kingdom of God. If you're someone who doesn't actually ir- become irritating in the endless questions and questioning of your faith, that, uh, uh, that, that, that some people do like Thomas. You are still welcome in the kingdom of God, but frankly, you are not normal. Jesus chose to found his church on, on, on 12 pretty ordinary people with some pretty ordinary foibles. And he used them to turn the world upside down. You feel ordinary. You are the the centre of gravity 
of God's purposes for his world. The Apostle Pauls are the freaks, the, the highly educated people. The centre of gravity is ordinary people. And they are ordinary people, works now, who are witnessing in word and deed. That's prominent in verses 5 to 8. They were called to proclaim the good news, verse 7. As you go, proclaim this message, the kingdom of heaven is near. And they were commissioned alongside that to do miraculous deeds. Verse 8. Heal those who are ill, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Of course, immediately we wonder whether we shouldn't then, if we are to be faithful Christians, whether we shouldn't expect miracles um, uh, today, or were they perhaps specific to that age. Most historic Bible teachers have taught that miracles were just for the age of Jesus, and a few decades after that, but not for now, actually, there's nothing in the New Testament that unambiguously points to that, as far as I can see. What we do see in the New Testament, though, is a shift of emphasis in the decades that follow Jesus' death and resurrection. In the days of Jesus, there was this great cluster of miracles which seemed clustered at that moment to authenticate the uniqueness of who Jesus is. And by extension that that goes out in the immediate to his apostles. And you see in the decades after that um, others, especially apostles, doing miracles which authenticate their ministry and authenticate the gospel as it goes into, uh, into new regions. But it's very much less frequent than what was happening in the, uh, in the time of Jesus himself. And by the end of the New Testament, for instance, when you find um, the Apostle Paul writing to, to, to Timothy, he does not call Timothy to be actively involved in miraculous ministry. The emphasis has moved now to preaching the gospel and living transformed godly lives in the world. And certainly in the, uh, um, the, the, the first three centuries of the early church, it was those transformed Christian lives that meant that the church became a, a dominant force throughout the Roman world. You don't find many Christians miraculously healing the sick, but you find them caring for the sick and enabling them to get well. You don't find Christians raising the dead, but you find them going out onto the rubbish heaps every day and picking up discarded, unwanted babies who were left on those rubbish heaps to die and saving them from death. You don't find them cleansing leprosy, but you find them accepting people with leprosy so that they feel clean. And it was that quality of practical living 
that actually in the long run meant the church grew and grew and grew. The last uh, pagan emperor of Rome was a man called Julian the Apostate, lived in um, the 4th century. He tried to stamp out Christianity, which at that point had become uh, um, uh, widely accepted. And uh, he, he wrote a letter complaining to all the pagan priests that he knew. He said, the impious Christians support not only their poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. He tried to persuade the pagan priests to, to, to outdo the Christians in practical care and failed. There was no doubt in the Roman world who cared more, whose lives were more attractive. That is the challenge of God's people today. All of us to witness in word and deed. Both are important. Words are important. It's popular in some circles to uh, quote St. Francis of Assisi who said, uh, preach the gospel always, use words if necessary. As if... uh, um, as if actions would preach the gospel. Interestingly, there is no evidence that Francis of Assisi said that or in fact said anything uh, uh, akin to it. He was in fact a loquacious preacher who was criticised for talking too long. Happens to us all. (laughs) And it may be actually that the traction that that little phrase has, that little Christian urban myth has got amongst us says something more about us than it does about Francis. Now, words are important. But so are deeds. Some of us, perhaps, are particularly called to use words and some of us are not so gifted in it. That that is the way the church functions, as the body that works together. But all of us, every single one of us, is called to live lives which, which adorn that witness of the church. Words without deeds are like um, hot air without a balloon. They just dissipate and are gone, but with a balloon, they can do serious, heavy lifting. As the Apostle Paul said it to the Colossians, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. They were ordinary people witnessing in an integrated fashion as God's people together in word and deed. Then, Jesus calls his disciples to simple living. I think that's what we need to get out of verses 9 and 10. Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts, no bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or staff, for the worker is worth his keep. I've already said that in some ways that that's particularly applicable to uh, full-time gospel um, uh, workers, but there is a wider applicability to us all. 
There is a strand in the New, in the, in the New Testament uh, teaching that says, says we are fools if we acquire more than we need to live a good and godly life for Jesus. Remember the rich man who had a great harvest and said, I will build bigger barns. Jesus says, God said to him that night, you fool. Every believer is called to just have enough for the journey. By all means, buy a house. We have. But, but, but buy it for ministry. Buy it because in the long run, it will cost you less than, uh, uh, than renting so that you can give away more or use it for other things. Don't buy a house because it will make you increase your net worth, because it will make you feel secure or it will make you look respectable. Those sorts of attitudes, Jesus says, are foolish. By all means, seek promotion at work, but, but, but look for that promotion because God has gifted you to serve him in that more prominent way. It is appropriate that you should be appropriately remunerated for that as well. But don't look for that money because it will make you feel good, because it will help you to buy superfluous things, because you'll, look, you'll be richer, richer than the next, month, next person. Look for that money because it will enable you to live a balanced life that can glorify Jesus and share more with others, as Paul says elsewhere. Live simply. Just, just, just provide enough for yourself. Don't have foolish ambitions beyond that. John Piper in his, um, his excellent book, uh, Don't Waste Your Life, if you haven't read it, um, read it. He says this, I will show you how to waste your life. Consider this story from the February 1998 Reader's Digest. A couple took early retirement from their jobs in the northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball and collect shells. Piper says, picture them before Christ at the great day of judgment. Look, God, see my shells. That, he says, is a tragedy. I have lots of daydreams like every, everyone else and they're, they're not all bad. Some of them are. But I filter every one of those daydreams through this one grid. What do I need to most glorify Jesus with the rest of my life? No superfluous gold, no bag to hold it in, no extra shirt, simply enough, says Jesus. And fourthly, ordinary people living out their lives, uh, witnessing to Jesus in word and deed, living simply and exercising wisdom. He says, verse 11, Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it's not, let your peace return to you. 
If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Not everyone, says Jesus, is open to the gospel. He doesn't tell them to go to every person, but to keep their eyes open for someone who might listen, who someone who might just be ready. Not every person who shows initial interest, he says, will continue to do so. They may welcome you into their house. You, as he puts it, offer, offer the house your peace, but if, if it is not accepted, if it comes back to you, well, we have to accept that. We do not shove the gospel down people's throats. Practice, of course, we live more settled lives than, uh, than those disciples did on that, um, uh, that exploratory journey. We can't leave every town where the message is uh, rejected. We'd be even more mobile than we are today. But this, this is an important principle. We look for people who are open to gospel conversations. You know, Judy and I have friends who we've had for, for years, num- numbers of them. And um, frankly, we probably have gospel conversations about every third year. Well, we pray for them. We live our Christian lives openly. We wait. We watch for opportunities. But we don't beat ourselves up or beat them over the head with the gospel message. It's not the way it works. We're looking for people in whom God is beginning to work who are open to hear the word of Jesus. Live wisely, says Jesus to his disciples. Don't be fools. So here is the Christian life that Jesus seems to be advocating and training these disciples in on this training program. And it's a lot less fanatical, a lot less anxiety inducing, a lot lot less guilt inducing than, to be honest, initially I thought. It is about ordinary people living lives of word and deed simply and wisely in a hostile world. Yeah, there will be challenges. Yes, there will be uh, difficulties. Yes, you can probably find a superficially more comfortable way to live by hiding your faith, by, by, by cuddling it to yourself, by not letting anyone see that you hold those weird views that they find so disconcerting. But you will not have peace. And we find that deep peace in our hearts as we not only enjoy knowing Jesus, but like the person who sees the flower on the roadside, will turn to their friend and say, look at that. I want to finish by telling you two uh, stories just briefly. One is of a wealthy businessman called George Cadbury. Some of you may have heard of him. He was the son of the founder of Cadbury's Chocolate and and a a very able businessman in his own 
right? He was passionately committed to, the, to his workers' welfare. He moved the, the Cadbury's factory out of uh, uh, um, uh, Birmingham into rural Worcestershire. He built a, a model town for his workers to live in, which is now a suburb of Birmingham called uh, uh, Bourneville. For many years, this wealthy, busy businessman would walk on Sundays into the rough part of Birmingham and teach an adult Sunday school so that ordinary poor um, men could learn to read and write. And uh, in his factory, he would uh, every day start the, um, the, the working day with a prayer. And after he'd been doing that for some years, he actually became a little conscience-stricken because he was aware that a lot of his workers were not uh, Christians. And uh, uh, he wondered whether he was being fair in forcing them to pray. So he announced that he was going to stop public prayers at the beginning of, uh, of work. The workforce was up in arms, including the non-Christians. They respected his faith so much they said no, they wanted to hear him pray at the beginning of the day. He um, made Bourneville alcohol free. Whatever you think of, uh, uh, of that, it's interesting that it is still alcohol-free. Tesco's wanted to open uh, an off-licence in 2007 and uh, the residents of Bourneville fought a legal battle to stop alcohol being fought in that area. So much had they learned, uh, uh, learned to appreciate what George Cadbury did. There's a man whose Christian witness not only spread far and wide, but has reverberated down through time. Through a life of word and deed, live for Jesus. I'll give you another story. It's a bit more sketchy, actually. It's a woman, I can't remember her name. I actually can't remember what country she came from or went to. I thought of trying to look it up, but then I know I thought it was significant. She served in that uh, country. It was an African country, I can remember that, and came to my attention because she died suddenly, tragically. She was in a car accident and was killed. And neither I nor, to be honest, many people around the world will remember her name or what she did. But she lived a life devoted to Jesus. She's not forgotten. I think probably every one of us in this room will be forgotten by this world a hundred years hence. Just a few rise above that like George Cadbury. But every one of us can be remembered with honour in the courtroom of Jesus. Because we live like this. Surely that's something you want, isn't it?